John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. At 535 Terry Avenue North in Seattle, Washington, sits the Wainwright Office Building. It's part of the Amazon.com campus. The building was named after John Wainwright. I'll get to Wainwright in just a moment, but first, Amazon.com. In 2015, Amazon passed Walmart as the most valuable retailer in America. Did you know that Amazon is now our country's fourth richest public corporation? Jeff Bezos launched Amazon as an online bookseller in 1994. The first book purchased on Amazon.com by a non-employee was entitled Fluid Concepts and Creative Analogies. It's a computer engineering book by Douglas Hofstadter, a real page turner I've heard. <laughs> it's cost $27.95. And guess who purchased it? John Wainwright. John Wainwright. And because he was their first customer ever, Amazon recognized Wainwright by naming an office building in his honor. And if we as Christians followed suit, we would need to name something after Andrew, for he was the first person to follow Jesus. In fact, the early church called the apostle Andrew Protocletus, which means first called. Andrew was the first person to follow Jesus. Andrew was the first person to bring a friend to Jesus. Andrew was the first person to bring Gentiles to Jesus. There is a biblical principle of Bible interpretation known as the law of first mention. The idea is that the initial place a subject appears sets the pace and provides insights into all the other times the same reference is mentioned. And that is certainly the case with Andrew. That Jesus would call a person like Andrew first clues us in to the traits that he desires most in all his followers. There is a lot we can learn from Andrew. Now understand, Andrew was one of four disciples who were fishermen by trade. With his older brother Peter and two sons of Zebedee, James and John, Andrew grew up in Bethsaida, a small fishing village on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. At some point, all four men moved east along the shore to the larger town of Capernaum. Now near Capernaum, there is a place where seven springs flow into the lake. The warmer water, of course, attracts the fish, and good fishermen go with the fish. 
Thus these men relocated to Capernaum. But when news arrived in Galilee about this wild man prophet who had emerged from the Judean desert and was challenging the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem, Andrew could no longer focus on his fishing. Apparently, he had been longing to know God's truth. And he had seen the sins of his people. He knew they needed a Savior. And so when John the Baptist came preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Andrew and another of his friends, probably the Apostle John, traveled south to the banks of the Jordan River to check out the Baptist. Both Andrew and John embraced his message. They became followers of John the Baptist. But their discipleship under John's tutelage was short-lived. For one day, John the Baptist was standing there with Andrew and with John when Jesus walked by. And we're told what the Baptist did. Looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. You see, this was John's mission. Not to attract people to himself, but to point them to Jesus. As John explained a little later in John 3 verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. Andrew and John heard Jesus speak that day. What? I wish we knew. It must have been a revolutionary talk, for it inspired them to throw caution to the wind, to say goodbye to their former mentor, and to trust this man they had barely met. We're told Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? Now to me, this sounds like a bit of a choke. I mean, imagine getting to ask Jesus, the all-wise, the Lord of glory, one question. And you wasted on his address? You could have Googled that. I mean, I'd think I'd ask Jesus, can you explain the reasons bad things happen to good people? Or maybe the mysteries of creation, I'd kind of like to know about that. Or something about nuclear fission, Jesus, how about that? Ask directions for his house, are you kidding me? But their question isn't as lame as we might first think. For in the first century, a close relationship existed between a Jew and his rabbi. It was not uncommon for a rabbi's disciples to move into his house, to live under his roof. They would eat and sleep and work side by side. You learn from your rabbi by doing life together. So when Andrew and John asked Jesus, where are you staying? In essence, they were asking to join him in life. They would stay by his side. They would work alongside him for the foreseeable future. They wanted to learn from him. And I love how Jesus replied. He said to them, come and see. (laughs) Oh, the amazing and miraculous sights their eyes would see over the next three and a half years. Could they have imagined? I wonder if Andrew and John fully grasped that by accepting Jesus' invitation that day to come and see, it would radically alter the trajectory of their lives forever. This morning, I want to talk about this disciple named Andrew, the Protocletus or the first called. And I want to notice, note three aspects of what we know about his example. First, he lived in the shadow 
of someone else. Second, on several occasions, he came out of the shadows to make a difference in a situation. And then third, at the end of his life, he left no shadow of a doubt as to his allegiance to Jesus. Here's Andrew's life in a nutshell, in the shadows, out of the shadows, and no shadow of a doubt. First, understand, Andrew lived in the shadow of his big brother, Simon Peter. And I'm sure Peter cast an enormous shadow, both literally and figuratively. There is a church tradition that ascribes to Peter the nickname, the giant. Evidently, Peter was large in stature. He was probably the starting linebacker for the high school football team. Andrew may have played on the JV. And personality-wise, again, Peter cast an imposing shadow. Peter was the type A, take charge, action-oriented disciple. It was Peter, not Andrew, who dared to walk on water and eventually sunk. It was an impulsive Peter, remember, who got so excited when he recognized Jesus, the risen Lord, on the seashore that he jumped from the boat with his clothes on and swam to the master. In both cases, it was a more reserved Andrew who stayed in the boat. I'm not saying Andrew lacked personality. To the contrary, I'm sure he was a gifted man who was pleasant to be around. But you would never know it when Peter was in the room. Peter dominated and Andrew led him. You know, it's interesting that even the gospel writers foster this impression of Andrew living in his brother's shadow. Matthew knew both brothers. They lived together in Jesus' merry band. But when he lists the 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, he does so as follows. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Why didn't Matthew write first Andrew and Peter, his brother? Later, both Matthew and Mark record the more formal calling of Jesus' disciples, where the Lord challenged them. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Both gospel writers use this language. Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, his brother. Apparently, Andrew was always known as Peter's brother, not vice versa. Andrew lived his whole life in his big brother's shadow. Yet not once do we ever get the impression that this bothered Andrew. He never resented his brother or the attention that came his way. To our knowledge, Andrew never got frustrated or angry at his more famous sibling. The 1975 Country Music Artist of the Year went to an upstart musician named John Denver. At the time, the traditionalists in country music, they didn't like Denver's new pop country sound. At the awards show, when Charlie Rich opened the envelope and saw that Denver had won, rather than read his name... He took out a cigarette lighter, set fire to the card, and walked off the stage. Wow! Talk about jealousy! Charlie Rich's actions reeked with resentment. But what if Jesus had announced that your big brother was getting the keys to the kingdom? What would you have done? Would you have resented it or celebrated it? Andrew must have been a humble guy. 
He rejoiced in his brother's promotion. It was James and John, and I'm sure Peter, who got in all the arguing matches over who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. It wasn't little brother Andrew. Andrew knew his place. It was where Jesus wanted him to be, and that was enough for Andrew. And when it's all about Jesus, and when it's all about being filled with his love, and when you live in his light, you don't notice someone else's shadow. The Baptist taught Andrew well. He must increase, but I must decrease. In fact, the first move Andrew makes as a new believer is to go and to tell his brother that he's found the Messiah. John 1 verse 40 recalls, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. It was Andrew who brought Peter to Jesus. I'm sure that Andrew knew that given Peter's personality, he would eventually take a more prominent position than Andrew. But apparently that consideration never entered his mind. He loved his big brother and he brought him to Jesus. Peter did go on to use the keys of the kingdom that Jesus had given him. You remember, it was Peter who preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, the church's open house, and 3,000 souls were saved. Peter enjoyed the limelight that day. But who brought Peter into the light years earlier? I can imagine Andrew on the day of Pentecost standing over in the shadows, cheering on his big brother, taking great satisfaction that he too had made a contribution. Andrew didn't preach the sermon but he brought to Jesus the man who did. This is why Jesus made Andrew and not Peter and not any of the other disciples, the Protocletus, the first called. Our Lord was making a statement. He was encouraging every Christian who would follow. Not everybody's going to be like Peter, bold enough or skilled enough to stand in front of thousands and preach an inaugural message. But every one of us can go and bring another person to Jesus. A friend, a co-worker, a family member, a neighbor, even a big brother. You may never stand behind a pulpit and preach a sermon, but we can all bring somebody to Jesus. Moshe Rosen started the missionary organization known as Jews for Jesus. His focus was on winning Jewish people to their Messiah. Moshe Rosen had this huge heart for evangelism. He was a bold witness. Once when introducing his wife to a church he was speaking at, he made this comment. He said, Seal isn't much of a soul winner. The only folks she ever won to Christ are her daughters and me. Well, the crowd laughed as you did. Like Peter, Moshe Rosen preached to thousands of people about Jesus. But like Andrew, his wife won the evangelist. Peter had a heart for the masses, but Andrew had a heart for the individual in the shadows. At the time, Andrew told Peter about Jesus. He wasn't yet Peter. His name was Simon. He was a nobody to everybody but Andrew. And yet he brought his brother to Jesus. Reminds me of Mordecai Ham. He was a southern evangelist who did a swing through North Carolina in the early 1930s. Not much came from his meetings except the conversion of a teenage boy known as Billy Frank. 
Ham's ministry would have disappeared from the pages of history had it not been for Billy Frank, or Billy Graham as you know him. Graham went on to share the gospel with 2.2 billion people on this planet, more than any other preacher in history. But who led Graham to Christ? It was Mordecai Ham. You know, there's an old saying, you can count the apples on a tree, but can you count the apples in a seed? When you lead a person to Jesus, you sow a seed that's going to live on and on and on. You may never fully know the results. My brother, Ken Adams, he pastors a thriving church in the Noonan area of Metro Atlanta. Ken's ministry is now responsible for thousands of people coming to Jesus. Yet I remember how Ken was converted. When he was just a boy, somebody in our church sent him an anonymous letter. In the letter, the person expressed their concern for Ken's salvation. I can remember he and mom sitting on the front porch reading that letter. And it caused Ken to think. It was because of that letter and someone's concern that brought Ken into a saving faith in Jesus. And now thousands of people have followed him. My point is, you never know what might come from that one person. And I love the fact that our text tells us that Andrew found his own brother. Andrew knew exactly who he needed to reach. He made a beeline straight for Peter. He found him. You know, several weeks ago, I talked about divine appointments. But there are times when God engineers a rendezvous. A surprise encounter occurs. The Holy Spirit sets it up. We're not aware. But here, Andrew knew that Peter was the target. From the moment he decided to follow Jesus, Peter was on his mind. It was so obvious to Andrew. He couldn't leave his brother behind. Peter, too, needed to follow Jesus. In the early days of the fiery Methodist revival, the British aristocrats would refuse to hire a Methodist cook for these cooks made it their duty to convert the maids and the housekeepers and eventually all the downstairs help. They were so on fire for God that they just grabbed the next person, the person next to them, and led them to Jesus. The Methodists didn't pray for weeks asking God to identify the person they should target. They just took the next sinner in line. They made the obvious choice. And this is what Andrew did. He found his brother. He didn't want to leave his brother behind. Surely he needed Jesus too. And so he brought his brother to Jesus. It was because Andrew lived in the shadows that he understood the value of the small, seemingly insignificant things. Andrew appreciated the lone individual. He had an eye for the details. He knew the importance of the few. It's been said, some people won't play in the band unless they can hit the big drum. That wasn't Andrew. Even the little paltry stuff didn't escape his attention. And this is what at times brought Andrew out of the shadows to make a difference in a life or in a situation. Remember John chapter 6. In fact, you can turn over there if you'd like. John chapter 6. Jesus wanted to spend some private time with he and his disciples. But at that time, private moments were few and far between. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 5, we read this. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. I mean, so much for escaping the crowd. 
He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? In other words, Philip, did you see a Chick-fil-A on the way in? Maybe a Publix or Kroger or something? John 6 verse 6 gives us a heads up, a little insider information. But this Jesus said to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus had a plan. He was testing Philip to see if he had just an inkling of faith. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Philip is often called the pragmatic disciple. He whips out his little calculator app, and he creates an equation. To feed 5,000 men with women and children, he figures it'll cost at least 200 denarii. That was a large sum of money, about eight months' wages. For a modern equivalency, figure $40,000. The one factor Philip didn't put into his equations was Jesus. That's when we're told in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, notice he's still in his brother's shadow, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Andrew comes out of the shadows because he sees a possibility that no one else saw. Remember, Andrew had an eye for the little things. Even though it was a child, even though the portions were meager, Andrew doesn't dismiss it. He says it's that somehow this might factor in what Jesus will do. I believe there was faith here in Andrew's actions. Maybe not a robust faith. Maybe just a could-be faith. But he came out of the shadows because he saw a possibility. Despite its meagerness, he believed Jesus cared about little boys. That he could work with little portions. And so again... Andrew brought somebody to Jesus. And of course, we know the rest of the story, don't we? Jesus went on to work a miracle of multiplication. Earlier, the winds and the waves had obeyed him. But now, so did the electrons and the protons. Jesus rearranges the molecular structure of these five loaves and two minnows in order to feed 15,000 hungry people and still have leftovers. Jesus fed a stadium full of people with a kid's meal. But it wouldn't have happened had Andrew not come out of the shadows and brought a lad and his lunch to Jesus. It seems Andrew saw possibilities, not problems. This is what creates a great witness for Jesus. A person who can see the possibilities. If you're always thinking, why waste my time on him? There's no way he's going to become a Christian. Or, oh, she's so far gone, she'll never listen. Oh, why should I share my faith? It won't really matter. If you have that attitude, then nobody will ever be reached. Just be glad the person who led you to Christ didn't take that attitude about you. They saw a possibility. I think it's interesting that Andrew saw a child with his lunchbox and brought him to Jesus. Most adults I know, they would have overlooked the child They would have just shuffled the kid off to the child care area and focused on the mission at hand. Now we can get something done, now that we've gotten rid of the kids. But no, for Andrew, this little kid represented a great possibility. 
And this is why we need Andrews in our church who see the potential in our kids, in our young people, who appreciate their possibilities. Andrew brought a young boy to Jesus. And God might want you to do the same. Don't ever leave a child or a grandchild home from church, especially if they're a teenager. Are you kidding me? Kids need biblical teaching and spiritual influence more than adults. There's still a work in progress. There's still hope for them. There's great possibilities. This is why we need to make heavy investments in our Sunday school and in our youth groups. Like Andrew, let's bring our kids to Jesus. And like the boy with his lunch, Jesus just might work great miracles in and through their lives. Once D.L. Moody came home from an evangelistic meeting, his wife asked her husband how it went. Moody said, well, we had two and a half converts. She replied, oh, you had two adults and one child? Moody answered, no, we had two children and one adult. The adults have already lived half their life. It's the two children who gave all their lives to Jesus. Andrew would have agreed with that assessment. There is a painting by a Spanish artist. His name is Bartolomo Murillo. It's entitled Martyrdom of St. Andrew. It flashes forward to Andrew's eventual crucifixion. But if you notice, on the edges of the scene, Murillo has painted a boy. His face is in a rag. He's wiping away his tears. It turns out in Murillo's mind, this boy was the young lad who Andrew brought to Jesus with his loaves and with his fish. And this boy loved Andrew. He followed him all the way to his martyrdom. For it was Andrew who had seen a possibility in him that nobody else had seen. Let's bring our boys and girls to Jesus. And there's one other incident where Andrew comes out of the shadows to bring someone to Jesus. In John chapter 12, you can turn there if you like. In John chapter 12 and in verse 20, We're told, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now remember, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. These seekers were Greeks or Gentiles. And usually Jews frowned on fraternizing with Gentiles. That's why to get an audience with Jesus, these Greeks thought that their best opportunity was the disciple with the Greek name. So they came to Philip. They were hoping that Philip could show them a little favoritism, could bypass any anti-Greek sentiment and connect them with Jesus. But there was another disciple with a Greek name. It was Andreas or Andrew. He was certainly Hebrew. In fact, his brother Simon had a Hebrew name, but for some reason, his parents gave Andrew a Greek name. And apparently, it had an effect on Andreas. He had a fondness for Greeks. The other disciples were patently Jewish. You remember, Peter would later have a tough time getting over his prejudices to preach the gospel to Gentiles. It took a rooftop vision to convince him. But Andrew seems to have had the opposite attitude. 
He had a sympathy for the Gentiles from the very beginning. And that's why John chapter 12, verse 22 tells us, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Philip didn't have the stature to stand up to the opposition he might have encountered from the big three, from Peter, James, and John. And Andrew wasn't intimidated by those guys. It was just his brother, his two fishing pals. Besides, Andrew understood grace was for every race, even before Paul in the New Testament hammered out the doctrine. He had no issue bringing a group of Greeks to Jesus. Andrew was privileged and honored to do so. And I hope that you and I have dealt with our prejudices and our bigotries. We are called to bring people to Jesus, but we don't always get to decide who those people will be. If you're only willing to reach out to people like you, then you don't understand the gospel and Christianity. Do you realize that Jesus belongs to all people? He is the Savior of the whole world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Don't you dare marginalize Jesus to the one group that's your favorite. We're not American believers or Southern believers or African believers or Asian believers. We are believers in the Jesus who sets up no fences, who has no borders, who has taken down the walls of separation. Andrew's ethnicity was Hebrew. His name was Greek. His skin color was probably some various shade of brown, like most of us. But his heart was as big as the whole world. And that's what matters, friends. Not a man's race or pigment or birthright, but the size of his heart. Jesus enlarges our heart to embrace the whole world. It's no surprise that even today... The patron saint of Greece is none other than their ancient friend, Andrew. It's interesting, we don't know if Jesus ever spoke to the Greeks that Andrew and Philip brought to him, let alone what he said, if he did. But there is a church tradition that says one of the Greeks who sought Jesus that day was another gospel writer, Dr. Luke. Luke became Paul's friend. A convert to Christianity. Perhaps it was Andrew who paved the way for Luke to be saved. Hey, when he was needed, Andrew was always willing to come out of the shadows and influence a person for Jesus. Andrew lived his life in the shadow of Peter. He came out of the shadows to bring people to Jesus. And lastly, he left no shadow of a doubt as to his loyalty. As I mentioned, Andrew died a martyr's death. When Jesus first called Andrew, remember what he told him? Come and see. It was rabbinical language. A disciple learned by example, by watching his rabbi. And Andrew not only lived by example, he died by his master's example. He too was crucified for Jesus' sake. Tradition has it that Andrew journeyed to a small village in Achaia or in southern Greece. Even at an old age, he still had a heart for the Grecians. And it was in the town of Petraea that Andrew preached the gospel. It didn't take long for a woman and her brother-in-law to come to faith in Jesus. There was only one problem. This woman was the wife of the local governor, and the man was his brother. 
And this pagan governor hated Christianity. He didn't want to see his family following Jesus. So the governor ordered the execution of Andrew. Andrew was sentenced to be crucified, but because he didn't feel worthy to die as Jesus did, he asked to be hung from an X-shaped cross. Today, such a cross is known as a saltier or a St. Andrew's cross. Tradition has it that Andrew hung from the cross in the square of Petraea for two full days while he proclaimed his faith in Jesus. He was declaring to everyone and to anyone what John had declared to him so many years earlier, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew even spoke fondly of embracing the cross. In an ancient text dating around the 6th century, the following words are attributed to Andrew at his crucifixion. O cross, before the Lord mounted you, you inspired an earthly fear. Now instead, endowed with heavenly love, you are accepted as a gift. I come to you confident and joyful that you too may receive me triumphant as the disciple of the one who was hung upon you. O blessed cross, clothed in the majesty and beauty of the Lord's limbs, take me, carry me far from men, and restore me to my teacher, so that through you, the one who redeemed me by you, may receive me. Was there any doubt, was there any shadow of a doubt that Andrew followed Jesus to the very end? Seven centuries after his death, a Catholic missionary brought relics attributed to Andrew to an area in Scotland called Fife. Because of these relics, Andrew became the patron saint, not just of Greece, but also of Scotland. Today, a St. Andrew's cross is on the flag of Scotland. Actually, in the area of Fife is the historic town known as St. Andrew's, famous as the home for golf. And it's world-renowned golf course, St. Andrew's. And Andrew should be associated with a golf course, for he will always be known as par for the course. For those who bring people to Jesus. Years ago, the Billy Graham Association launched a campaign in conjunction with their crusades to encourage Christians to share their faith and to reach out you know, to their friends for Jesus. The program was called Operation Andrew. How fitting. While well, in North Carolina, one of the BGA pastors, Hank Bukema, he was approached by an 82-year-old woman, 82 years old. This lady had gotten involved in Operation Andrew. But she came up that day and she confessed. She says, I haven't led anyone to Christ for many years. I've been trying to think of people to invite to the crusade, but I just don't seem to have any non-Christian friends anymore. Well, fast forward to the night of the crusade. Bukema was standing there next to the altar after the service when he felt a little tug on his coat. It was this 82-year-old lady. She told him, I've been going to the grocery store twice a day on purpose. I used to go once a week. Every time I go, I make sure I get the same checkout girl. We've become friends. And there, pointing to the altar, she said excitingly, there she is. She's being counseled for salvation. But that's not the end of the story. A few nights later, 
Again, Bukema was standing in the altar when he felt a little tug on his coat. Again, it was this 82-year-old lady. She asked him, how do I look? Well, he wasn't sure how to answer. But he didn't have to because she continued, I've been to the beauty parlor twice this week. I haven't been in years. I go to the same beautician. We're now friends. She's over there being counseled. This 82-year-old lady became an Andrew. She wasn't much of a preacher. She would never be much of a preacher. But she knew the value of small things and of individuals and of coming out of, a, and coming out of the shadows to make a difference in their lives. She brought people to Jesus. And you can too. You can think of a way to rub up against somebody who needs Jesus and offer them an invite. Oh, but I don't have any non-Christian friends. you got people around you who are non-Christians, who are sinners. If you've got no sinners around you, come over to my house. you got people around you who are sinners, who need Jesus. You can find some ways. It might take some effort. It might take some creativity. But you can work it out. Don't give me that excuse. We all can invite somebody to Jesus. There's an old saying. There's only one thing better than going to heaven, and that's taking somebody with you. I'll bet you it was Andrew who coined that phrase. You can be an Andrew. You can bring somebody to Jesus, your brother, your mother, your spouse, your child, your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, your teammate, your beautician, the child down the street. I believe Andrew was the first called for he embodied God's strategy for evangelism. Jesus knew that with very few exceptions, this world would be one, one at a time. This Easter, be an Andrew. Look around you and see the possibilities. Find somebody, young or old, like you or even not like you, but bring them to Jesus. Invite someone to church this Easter Sunday. People are open to spiritual invitations during the holidays, at Christmas and at Easter. Let's take advantage of this seasonal openness and bring them to Jesus. You may never know the difference that your invitation makes.